Here they come! Hello and welcome to episode 122 of Effectively Speaking, the podcast that takes a look at some of the special effects sequences of film and television, be they classic, average or duff. I'm your host Eric Moore and today I'm joined by Andrew Glazebrook to look at the opening of Battle Beyond the Stars. But before we get into that, uh, just an apology for the sound quality. Um, we did the recording yesterday and it uh, sounded fine to me and to Andrew while we were doing it. Um, played the tracks back afterwards and uh, mine sounded fine Andrew sounded fine unfortunately Andrew's track also picked up my audio when I was talking to him and so when I tried combining the two audio tracks together you get this hideous hideous um, echo effect of me speaking twice all right um, now I could have you know junked it and forgot about it I could have redone it. I don't like redoing episodes because then, you know, it's like you're almost talking from a script and it's not spontaneous. Um, and I was very pleased with how this recording went. So the other alternative I had was to lose my audio track and just use Andrew's audio track, which is what you're going to hear. But because what you've got basically is Andrew's audio track with the sound of me coming out of his laptop, I sound like I'm the incredible shrinking man. I sound like I'm about three inches tall, sat on the desk next to him. So uh, there you go. As I say, apologies for it. I sound very small and very tinny, but Andrew's more interesting than me anyway, and you get him full volume. So here we go. Apologies. Normal service will be resumed next time. Going in. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Yoke Eric. I'm very happy. I'm in a happy place, I must say, today. Uh, it's a very happy place when you're thinking back to the late 70s when you're getting all these like Star Wars knockoff films and you just lap them up because, hey, it's a new bit of science fiction, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Buying magazines like Fantastic Films and Starlog and Starburst and seeing all of these great stills and thinking, what's that? You know, and, and that, that was the only information you had. You couldn't go on the internet and then search for any more information. <laughs> You yeah. just got and this so handful many, of full of so pictures. many of those films. Um, they look better as stills rather than the moving image as well, don't they? Yeah, and there was quite a lot of those movies back in the day when they'd often put like a, a teaser poster up, and you're thinking, "My God, that looks amazing!" And then, and then either the film never came out, or or the film did come out, and it wasn't as good as the poster. <laughs> Yeah, I distinctly, distinctly remember the issue of Starlog that came out that featured, it was a, like a sneak preview of Battle Beyond the Stars. And the first page was that, that the, the whole page was almost a photo of that hammerhead yeah. spaceship we're going to talk about today. And it's like, good Lord, this this is as good as Star Wars special effects. But then the film came out. And yeah. while the model work is terrific, and we'll talk about this later, um, it has it, it has quite a few shortcomings when you compare it to its source material. Yeah, don't you think? yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. So when when did you first become aware of Battle Beyond the Stars? Was it through reading the magazines? Yeah, um, and I'm I'm sort of pretty sure it never came to the local cinemas. So I ended up kind of it, it was a I think it was a Warner Brothers release on VHS. Uh, do you remember their kind of like Warner Brothers used to have a very unique kind of rental case. Um, it did, and it had that, that, that slanted Warner Brothers like logo thing embossed into it, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, so I, I do remember sort of a, a, a friend of mine, uh, we, we picked it up from the local video shop and watched it, uh, obviously pan and scan. Um, and yeah, yeah, I enjoyed this because I, like, like yourself, I enjoyed anything sci-fi at the time and I thought it was great fun. Because mm, uh, we did, we, we would watch everything. We watched the Logan's Run TV show. We watched the Planet of the Apes TV show. Didn't yeah, we? yeah. You know, anything, you know, all, all the um, filmation cartoons that were on on Saturday mornings. If it was science fiction, we watched it, didn't we? Yeah, and, and there seemed to be a lot of it, didn't there? 
There was, I mean, I, I, and I'm sure it is Star Wars. That is the thing that kick-started it because, you yeah. know, up until Star Wars, science fiction really wasn't very well thought of. And you did have, as I say, the cartoon to Planet of the Apes, which was a successful film series. Yeah. But, yeah, but then after that, yeah, there was everything, you know, and it's like, oh, well, Logan's Run came out just before uh, Star Wars. Let's make a TV show. Then you had Fantastic Journey, yeah. didn't you? Yeah. But, uh, yeah, yeah, and, and, and they were, yeah... They, 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 they didn't, it's like $60 million man as well, an incredible Hulk. It seemed to be a soap opera with a little bit of science fiction at the end or yeah. at the beginning. And I think we've mentioned mm. this previously on a, another podcast about, you know, this whole thing of the, 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 the news would finish on BBC One and you'd switch straight over to BBC Two and that's when you get your fix of whether it was the original Flash Gordon or you might get Book Rogers on there and... And there was just this time slot constantly on BBC Two with sci-fi on. Um, and we lapped it up, didn't yeah, we? We absolutely lapped it up. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, I showed it. I showed Battle Beyond the Stars. It was a uh, second feature. I can't remember to what, but I know I did show it. Right. Uh, but I don't know what it was uh, twinned with at all. Yeah. Um, you must have only been young then when you showed that. How, how old were you? Well, that would have been about 82 that I showed that. So, yeah, I would have been 20 yeah. when I and and it was one yeah we can talk about it shortly um you know i like that will be on the stars it's what what we say a guilty pleasure isn't it yeah you know? yeah definitely um, it's, it's like the star crashes and stuff like that but i remember watching battle beyond the stars i didn't give a stuff about the the, the the characters i just wanted to see the special effects yeah 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 all right, okay, well, usually on this show, uh, we discuss, you know, the sequence first, and then we do behind the scenes, but I thought this time um, we would give a bit of the backstory first, because that is interesting, how Battle uh, Beyond the Stars came out. Yeah. Um, and, of course, this film owes its origins, as do, as we were just saying, there's so many film and TV things, you, you, you know, uh, it's all down to the success of Star Wars, and, yeah. of course, as you know, Sorry, sorry, Andrew, you're going to know all this anyway. Um, you know, it's a Roger Corman film, isn't it? It's a New World Pictures film. Mm, yeah. Yeah, and it was his most expensive film up to date, uh, up to that point. Um, it cost $2 million to make, um, and that's because, you know, he had gone to see Star Wars. You know, he's a great businessman, Roger Corman. He's seen the, the latest thing. Star Wars is the latest thing. I've got to get into science fiction, proper science fiction. Um and he wanted a slice of that science fiction action, um, and he knew he had to up his game. Um, and that's, as I say, $2 million budget, but apparently most of that went on the salaries for Robert Vaughan and George Peppard. Right. It? Yeah, I mean, you know, it it certainly does look like one of his more expensive movies. I mean, Common could work wonders normally with very little budget, so even if they got a million between them, there's, there's still a lot on the screen. Um you know, probably more miniatures, probably more sets than I've ever seen in a Corman movie. Um, you know, um, there was, there was in, in, I mean, there was, I, I don't think anything was shot on location, was it? It was all studio. All uh, totally studio. Yeah, yes. yeah, none, none of the stuff on Akia was shot on location. So, yeah, it was entirely studio based. And, uh, you know, it, it sort of, um, for a common production, that was unusual because normally his things would be probably shot in deserts, you know, like Death Race 2000 and things like that, you know. Um, but, yeah, yeah, things were built. Yeah. I mean, I say, you know, most of the money went on Robert Vaughan and George Peppard. And, and, and that's the thing I, I, I don't like about Battle Beyond the Stars is I don't believe the characters for one second. I think Robert Vaughan is sleepwalking his way through it. George Peppard is doing something I don't know if he's sending himself up yeah. at all or anything. He seems to be in like a halfway mark between the serious stuff that he was doing and this is, you know, just before the 80s. Yeah, isn't he? yeah definitely. He, he's almost becoming a caricature of himself. And every character, apart from Sybil Danning, I like Sybil Danning's character. Yeah. Every character in this film, I prefer their spaceship to the actual character. And that's not good, really, is it? <laughs> yeah. And, and there's, a you know, the interesting story about uh, the spaceships, isn't there, and what, why they kind of match the characters. Uh, that's more of a behind-the-scenes type of thing. But, uh, you know, they were going to be very generic at one point. And, uh, James, no, I, mean, James I, I, I think if, if the talent that came on board for this film hadn't come on board and you had had rather, you know, uninspired, you know, set 
designers, model makers and stuff. I don't think it would have the appeal that it has now. But of course, yes, um, Roger Corman, he went to several uh, special effects companies to do the special effects, but none would do it for the amount yeah. of money he had left yeah. over. And so that's when he created his own special effects department. Yeah. And this is serendipity because, you know, he started hiring people who were very talented, yeah. um, some that he had already worked with before, um, like uh, Chuck Comiskey. Um, yeah. But yeah. he also got in Patrick McClung, heroes of ours, the mm. Skotak brothers. Yeah. Um, you know, who, you know, um, they, they, they were very keen on the model making and the miniature work, but they wanted to learn everything. They were ju ju just sponges wanting to absorb how you do things. And they were interested in set design and set building as well, weren't they? Yeah. And if people don't know this already, this is kind of definitely James Cameron's foot on the ladder for his rise to fame. And you can tell. Oh, yes. Uh, with, without James Cameron, this film like you just said, it wouldn't have been half as influential in terms of its miniature work and stuff because this is the guy who set a lot of the production design in motion in terms of making the interior of the ships match, match the exterior of the ships. Um, um, apparently, originally, the inside of the Nell ship was just a very generic set, and he he gave it the more organic look. He gave it the, you know, the, 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 the feel... Um, otherwise, say we would have ended up with just a very ordinary, plain spaceship interior, which you know would have been forgotten about. But you know, it was it was his art direction that's you know decided on that. So in a way, I mean, I know that um, Jimmy T. Murakami is obviously credited as director, and then you you sometimes get Roger Corman kind of credited as uncredited director. But I think James Cameron himself is probably almost a, a co-director. In some respects, you know, um, yeah. In terms, yeah. of, he wasn't necessarily directing the action, but he was certainly directing the production. There are there are shots. I, I was struck when I was doing, you know, a bit of rehearsal for today's recording, watching it. There are moments in the film that are very, very. It's like, hang on, this is very similar to what I saw in Aliens and things like this, you know. Yeah. And I'm sure yeah. that's James Cameron uh, behind it. Yeah, there, there, there's certain. Uh, effect shots and certain sets uh, you know this carries over into films like Battle Beyond the Stars and stuff where you can see it's almost like he's using these films as like a testing ground for his own techniques yes um, yeah. because he knows you know it, it's it's a place to try these things out for when he actually gets the directive feature of his own yeah, uh, and it is fascinating to see his ascension on one film because Chuck Comiskey he hired James Cameron um and he started off as one of the miniature model makers because Chuck had been impressed by his student film, which was called Xenogenesis. Yeah. Uh, and he asked him to create a design for oh, John Boy's, uh, Richard Thomas's ship. Yeah. And, uh, and it was James Cameron who, who didn't want to go the, you know, the Star Wars route of, you know, just flat surfaces. He, he wanted to go um, more organic. Uh, yeah. Because it's an AI, isn't it? It's Nell, mm. isn't it? Yeah. Uh, Nell is the uh, computer on the ship, and he's the one who went organic. He's the one who went very female curves for, mm. for uh, Nell. Nell yeah. Yeah. Don't you think? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it, it's almost kind of um, you know H.R. Giger looking in some respects. It does have a very female form, a very organic form. Um, I mean, the, the colour's obviously different. It's like an orange spaceship as opposed to grey, but, you know, he, he's he got that feel to it, um, definitely. Um, and the other interesting thing is um, regarding this is, like, you know, the the fact I think James Cameron was one of these people. He he told Roger Corman uh, he could do stuff that he couldn't actually do, and then he said he spent, like, the weekend literally at the library finding books on special effects, looking for how does front projection work and how does this work? You know, he was a type of guy who would literally say, "Yeah, I can do that, no problem," and then worried about it later. But, but yeah. then, but then could physically go off and back himself up. You know, he never sort of showed up and said, "Sorry, Roger, uh, I was lying. I couldn't do it." He he made sure he could do it, um, and and that's kind of like you know how he pushed himself in the industry and got himself to where he is now. Yeah, uh, one of those examples was because you know Roger Corman loved the Nell spaceship and um, and and you know. That's the next rung up the ladder. Um, he, he was so impressed by that. You're not a model maker now. You are head of special miniature photography. Yeah. Okay. Because James Cameron had said, 
I can do it. Nobody else had experience, but James Cameron goes, yeah, I can do that, yeah. even though he couldn't. But he yeah. understood the idea of it, and as you say, he went off and he researched it. Yeah. Yeah, so just before the film was about to begin, the art director left, and that's when he went another notch up the ladder yeah. uh, and became art director. So he went from model maker, special effects technician, to art director, what, in like eight weeks, something like that. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, I'm not. Is he credited as production designer as well on the movie? I'm not too sure whether he actually is. I've not seen what his IMDb, you uh, know, designation is on uh, on this let film. Me, let me just have a. I'm, I'm just on IMDb now. Let me just scan down. Yeah, he's down as art um, art direction. I think that is essentially production designer on the credits. He's there's two right. people. Two people. Charles William Breen. He might be the guy who possibly left. And James Cameron art direction by there's no actual production designer credit, so that must be it. Right, right. Um, a very hammer uh, moment, I think, is I've got an anecdote here that said um, Roger Corman, when he would come along and see how he was going on, if he saw sets half built and people just standing around, he would fire them. And that's exactly what James Carreras did when he would come and visit a Hammer film in production. He's like, why am I paying all these people, yeah. you know, standing around doing nothing? Well, of course, you know, they're waiting for something to come along or you're waiting for the glue set to set or the paint to dry. Um, so um, what he realised, James Cameron realised that um, if... He arrived and there was a nobody on the set. He was all right. Nobody was fired. So they had a lookout. And every time they saw Roger Corman's car come in, everybody cleared off. So when he came in, he just saw the set and then he wouldn't get displeased. Yeah. Man. Corman, uh, I mean, you know, there's, there's so many great stories about uh, Roger Corman over the years on his productions, you know, and uh, these kind of great. I, I can't remember whether it was a Joe Dante story. This is a Sam Raimi story about when they were starting to lose light, if they were shooting outside, you just get the entire crew's sort of cars to park up and just switch the headlights on. <laughs> you know, that was the that was the way he would get those last few minutes of light, you know. <laughs> uh, it is brilliant. I love, I love this era of filmmaking, this low-budget, you know, filmmaking, that that is y your answer, you yeah. know. Yeah. But you also... And that's he... totally... Go on. Sorry, uh, no. sorry, Andrew. No, no, after you. No, I was going to say you also hear these stories. I think it was on Battle Beyond the Stars and Galaxy Terror, where they said they'd literally have to stop production, like shooting, for just a few minutes, um, because they were tearing the, a set down at the end of the studio. So someone would have to go down and say, "Can you be quiet for a minute?" Then they'd fill in <laughs> the scene, and then they'd go back and say, "Right, you can start pulling the rest of the set down," because the, you know, as one set was getting built and filmed, it was then getting demolished. And re another one was getting rebuilt in its place. You know that um, very few of the sets were then held over because I mean some of them did get recycled into other common movies um, as, as sets, but those movies were probably literally shot the same week, if not the week yeah, after. Back. Yeah, yeah no, not, nothing was ever in storage for kind of you know for, for months. Uh, it was probably a case of common would say to somebody, "We've got a set here. If you can if you can get a script together and something together within the next three days." Uh, two or three days, you can use it. Otherwise, it's gone. You know, and, and that... again, that is a James Carreras thing. I mean, you, you, you know, Plague of the Zombies and the Reptile. You know, Rasputin and Dracula, Prince of Darkness, using exactly the same sets, make two films using the same sets. Yeah, you know, fantastic uh, stuff. Which is a different thing from obviously. I mean, we we, we both know, and uh, maybe a lot of the listeners will know that. That was actually different films being shot on the same sets, but Coleman also, a lot of the special effects on Battle Beyond the Stars were just verbatim, just passed to other companies to just use as a stock effect shots, which wasn't as good in a way, because you're thinking, you know, if you watch another movie and you think, oh, that's the same set, but they've lit it differently, that's fair enough. But when you just see the same special effect shots, you're thinking, that's a bit cheap. Yeah. It's cost-cutting, isn't it? Yeah. In much the same way, you know, on TV, exactly the same time, Battlestar Galactica, they would re reuse shots, wouldn't they? But yeah. Rogers would reuse shots, you know? Yeah. When you've seen a couple, you go, hang on, I've seen this before, you know? But there's uh, there's obviously Space Raiders is the most famous one, I think, which practically used, like, you know, the majority of the special effects. Um, yes. And then there's, yeah, I think... I've got it here. It's uh, Space Raiders, StarQuest Two, Dead Space, and Forbidden World. All yeah. Use, um, yeah, special effects footage from Battle Beyond yeah, the Stars. Yeah, and there's another one, I think it's called Star Slammer, uh, with uh, Ross Hagen in it, and that uses the effects as well. 
right. um, that uses the um, the um, Kierman ship. I think it uses the um, the fighter craft. I think it might even use Nanelia's shuttle as well, right? Potentially, but uh, yeah, that uses a, a fair few of them. And that was, I think, a Fred Olin Ray movie. So um, he's not well, unless Common produced that. I'm not too sure, but Fred Olin Ray was a filmmaker in his own right. Yeah, but he, Common wouldn't have lost money. You know, if he let him have the footage, he would have made money out of it. Yeah, he? yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, let's get into the sequence that we're going to be talking about today. Ruthless invaders, a defenseless planet. Battle beyond the stars. A lone youth escapes on a last-ditch mission that begins at the edge of the universe. of a boy who finds more than he expected. <laughs> and all he can handle. Does your species have kissing? Oh, yes. We have that. Try one. That's a hot dog. It comes from Earth. Do you like it? There's no dog in this. Mm -mm. Soybean meal? Niacin, dextrose, and sodium nitrate flavoring. That's what we call meat back home. Battle Beyond the Stars. And it is the opening sequence. Um, and it's been a while since I've watched Battle Beyond the Stars. I've had it on DVD for quite a long time. But it's very strange. When I watch this film, this, the, the, the very beginning, you've got this terrific James Horner score. Yeah, um, which was great then, but of course James Horner was renowned for reusing his uh, music. So yeah. after you know the likes of his Star Trek work and Aliens, it all sounds a bit familiar now. Now you watch it, don't you think? Yeah, I mean his his first two or three scores, which were this and uh, Humanoids in the Deep, I think this and Krull, you can pretty much hear the themes from all of those in all of the different movies he did, you know, and this is right up to Avatar. I was still hearing the same music. Um, I mean, he, he is a t terrific composer and, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. It is familiar. Some of the, you know, the themes and the riffs, you know, but they're brilliant to begin with. So I don't mind hearing them rejigged a little bit, you know, it's not like it was a different composer ripping him off. He, he's, he's, you know, ripping himself off, if you like. Yeah, he he did do a bit of lifting as well from other people. I mean, there's there's a little. It it, it wasn't just sort of Horner as well in the opening sequence, which you know you're going to talk about when the ship first appears. We hear the kind of noises which you were getting from Vija in Star Trek. Yes, um, very now, Star Trek. This opening bit. Yeah. Now now this is because Alan Howarth, who also worked on. Uh, with with people like John Carpenter and worked on Star Trek the Motion Picture, he created those kind of like uh, noises for mm -hmm. for Vija, and he just brought them straight over to this. Yes, um, the very sort of clanky, sort of twangy noises of like you know, um, yeah, you hear them when the Hammerhead first appears. Yes, and I remember yeah. you know thinking, oh, that's very Star Trek. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. So so everything seems a bit familiar, even before we've even seen anything. And the first thing we do see are the uh, opening titles. And again, Star Wars massive influence to have, you know, that electric blue, you know, font for the titles is screaming Star Wars before yeah, we've even yeah. seen, you know, a spaceship, you know? Yeah, then we've got like almost like a hyperspace effect. Yes. Um, which and is it, Star Wars. Yeah, but, and, and then we come up with the Hammerhead ship. Yeah. Um, what, what, what I call the Hammerhead ship, John Saxon's ship. Um, out of all the ships in this th this film, which, which are your favourites? Because I know this is my favourite one, the Hammerhead ship. Yeah, I, I do like the Hammerhead. I mean, I, I know a lot of people at the time said, oh, it was just a copy of the Blockade Runner. It's not. It's, it's uh, you know, besides the Hammerheads on it, there's nothing else really that is Blockade Runner. It's, it's kind of more Star Destroyer than Blockade Runner. Um, I like Cowboy's ship. I've always liked that. Um, I thought that was a great design, and I like the 
the fact it towed the section behind it. I always did like an Anelia shuttle because it's kind of a, a real greeble sort of thing, you know, this little tiny escape ship that she has. Um, mm-hmm. I like the Hephaestus station. I thought that was a great uh, miniature. Um, and obviously Nell is, is, a, is a cool design. The ones I wasn't too fussed on. I was never too fussed on the um, on, um, Gelt ship, which was the Robert Vaughn character. Yeah. Uh, St. X-Men's ship was a little bit nondescript. Uh, I do quite like the, the fighter craft, which uh, from, from the Hammerhead. Uh, that, that 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 fighter craft screams um, the Scotax to me. I'm sure they made that. That is very. We've said before, haven't we? You know that some miniature makers have a distinctive style yeah. to what they make. You know, Martin Bauer being you know the ultimate example, and that just screams the Scotax to me. That fighter craft. Yeah, I, b- I believe they did the, the obviously the Hammerhead and those fighter craft. Uh, James Cameron and Alec Gillis, um, who was. A makeup artist, funnily enough, he, they built Nell, mm-hmm. as far as I know. Um, I'm not too sure about, I mean, Nanelia Shuttle, because I mean, there's other model makers. You've got uh, people like uh, Brian Chin, who worked yeah. quite a lot of the time with people like that. There was, uh, I think there was a guy called uh, Maury Shallock, uh, who was another one of that kind of crowd. There was sort of several people who were all from that, uh, I think, uh, now, there's a guy called Pat Sweeney, but I'm not too sure whether he's a, a cameraman or a model maker. But they, these were that like little core group who went on then to work on several of these common movies and then transposed themselves onto things like Terminator and Aliens and uh, those type of movies. You know, Cam- Cameron made some good connections, really, while he was doing this movie. You say cowboy ship. I like cowboy ship because um, if you go on the RPF page and various modelling things people have recreated it and it yeah. is very apparent just what kit parts are used because it is it's a basic form with a ton of kit parts isn't it yeah it's that um uh the, the it's the basis is that british kind of um it's a quad gun quad, quad gun tractor isn't it it's the the thing yeah, that pulls it. the quad gun and it's two of those kind of glued on top of each other um mm-hmm. as the basic and yeah it, it is one of the f- the few where you can literally look at it and think yeah you know there's the apollo uh parts yep. and you know certain uh, fives and stuff like that i've got some photos i will put them on the facebook page you know which is identifying what's what they're all like color coded and you can see yeah. just uh what the guys are doing and it is terrific i i, I really do like the cowboy ship as you say the the way it's a bit like the colonial movers ship isn't it in battlestar galactica where you've got something in the front pulling a load yeah. behind it if there was one, if there was one thing that probably let it down for me, it was the fact that there was no kind of interior cockpit. It was just kind of like white cockpit, mm-hmm. just lit. Now it would have been nice, obviously, if somebody had taken the time, maybe, to build um, a, a cockpit for it. But maybe this was at the point where they didn't know what the cockpit was going to look like. Yeah, um, you know, because Cameron maybe hadn't come on board at this point to actually design what the inside was going to look like. So maybe you know they just thought we'll keep it, you know, um, generic, amb- ambiguous, and then you know. Yeah. So you can see light, but you can't actually see nothing through the windows, mm. which mm. is a shame, really. Yeah. All right, well, yeah, getting back to the hammerhead, and, yeah. and you're right, yeah, the head, the, the, the front of it, yeah, I can see where people say that, but that's the only bit that's a bit like the yeah. blockade yeah. runner, because you're right, the rest of it is rather, you know, arrowhead-shaped, isn't it, like a Star Destroyer. It's got this open space in the middle, which I've, I've always been curious about. It seems to be a waste of space to have this big whacking great big square in the middle of it that's totally empty. Yeah, that's kind of where the ships are seen launching from, isn't it, I think, in the mm-hmm. sequences. It's kind of like, like a, yeah, like a, a, a chopped-out section. Yeah, uh, I, but I... I I love this opening shot because, you know, you've got the hammerhead coming towards the camera and then mm. the camera moves out of its way yeah. and goes round to its side. Um, and you've got this terrific pan then along the side of the ship and then panning back round and then you see the engines at the end. And that is incredibly impressive for a, a low-budget film. Yeah. That's a terrific opening. And again, as you say, the, uh, the, the, the Star Trek Vija Klingon ship uh encounter music isn't it yeah i like that fact as well before the engines even come into shot you get that kind of like slight orange yellow glow flaring into the side so you kind of think oh here come the engines but uh you know at least they didn't go down the route of having it just flying over the top of the camera you know like the the sort of 
Star Wars and Star Crash and other things that I really don't. So much. I, I'm sure this is James Cameron. I'm because James Cameron won't. You know, he won't emulate. He wants to come up with his own thing. And okay, you've got a. Uh, the script says the ship's coming towards camera. How can we do this? You know, that's not slavishly following Star Wars. And here you go. You know, the camera yeah. moves out. He moves yeah. around the side, and then you looks at it from the from the rear. Yeah, the other ship actually, which is quite interesting, which is obviously what it then comes up to, is this kind of like bizarre little weather satellite, which, you know, I always thought, even back when I was watching it as a teenager, thinking, well, are they taking up to that satellite on another ship, or does that satellite actually land? Because it doesn't seem to be any way it would land, because it just seems like a, like a little cylindrical probe. It's got to be, um, yeah, yeah, you know, it must have little supply ships go up to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah the, I, I like it. I like the satellite. The only thing about it is there's that, that there's just something about I, I don't know if it's the way it's been photographed or what, but it it looks what it is. It looks about a foot tall. You yeah. know, you don't get a sense of mass to it, do you? I like the fact you've got a little window and you can almost see inside. There's a little yeah. round window halfway down. I th is it? It might be that ship actually, which again I think it's sort of a uh, you know Saturn V Apollo part uh, for the main cylinder. Potentially. Oh, it could be. It it's could this, be. it's the sound effects they've got with it though. These kind of like very sort of again Buck Rogers, um, that's like electricy type twinkling sound effects um, as it's flying. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. The little computer noises yeah. as, as it's going around. Yeah. yeah. But it is a great shot. You know that that first shot you see of it sort of drifting along. Um, you know when when the guy in the ship says, "All I've got is this one weather satellite." Um, yeah. Yeah, that that is a nice shot. Why is it brown? Why, why, why would you paint a, a spaceship brown? A <laughs> yeah, brown? It's, it's, it's weird because it's the same colour as Nell, isn't it? Sort of almost like a, sand, like a sandy, sandy reddy brown, yeah. Yeah, but before we get that, we go inside the Hammerhead ship and, and you've got this, um, a very Star Crash set, you know. Um, it, it screams Star Crash. The way you've got the coloured filters on all the lights and everything. You, you don't see John Saxon to begin with, but you know these are the bad guys because yeah. of the lighting. Don't you? Yeah. Yeah, I always thought it was weird how kind of like John Saxon's kind of like group of bad guys. He seems to be the only one who's kind of like got a normal face. Everybody else has got huge cracks and splits. And what is it with these cracks? It's never explained. But yeah, they do, don't they? Yeah, it's almost like the entire race is some kind of like failed mutant sort of thing. But uh, yeah, he's the only one who seems to have like a a, a normal face. Um, well, he's got that scar thing painted over his eye, hasn't he? Some yeah. blue light thing. Yeah, I wasn't ever um, sure whether that was meant to be a tattoo or whether it was meant to be some kind of uh, birthmark or what, you know. Mm, mm. But, but we don't see him at this point. It's all in voiceover. You hear him talking. Yeah, They're going yeah. to go to this planet called Akia. And, um, and that's at the point, that's when the Hammerhead ship approaches the satellite. That's the shot that I'm thinking, this is very Aliens, because you get a, a shot of the planet with a halo around it. That's as right, the, yeah. As approaching, I'm thinking, I'm sure I've seen something similar like this mm. in either Aliens or Alien. Yeah. And I like the two guys in the satellite. They're very jolly, aren't they? It's like, oh, yeah. hello there, we've got visitors. You yeah, know? almost like they've never seen anybody for months. Yeah, and I, I like that moment where you get the hammerhead approaching the satellite. It's almost like the James Bond film with the, you know, where you've got the spaceship which swallows all the... Yeah, that's right, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's really, really good, but a terrible optical effect of it being zapped. Yeah, yeah. It's... And disintegrated, that's not too good. There's a lot of these movies of that era. Um, it's a little bit like Galaxy of Terror as well, where you've got, a big sort of disparagement sort of between the quality of certain shots and some of the choices they make for lasers or for sound effects. Yeah, where absolutely. You're, where you're thinking, this is really, really good, but then suddenly you've just got this zap, zap, or a, an optical effect, where you're thinking, that just really cheapened the entire sequence now. This um, is the problem I have with Battlestar Galactica and Buck Rogers in that I like the model work. Okay, some of it, you know, it's on video and it's or or, or whatever, you know, it's it's not as good as it could be. But it is the optical effects and it is the sound effects of the lasers. They are nowhere near as impressive of, uh, as what you see in Star Wars. Yeah, like like if um, you know that they've actually just fired a laser and you'd have that they've actually physically blown the satellite up as a miniature and you'd have seen all the parts flying off and things like that, that probably would have looked great. But instead, it's this sort of 
balls of light and then the entire thing glows in like a ball of light, doesn't it? And then just kind of disappears. Yes, yeah, no, that's not good. That's not yes. good. We've got to take that into account when we get to the rating, yeah. you know, the opticals of this, yeah. But then we see uh, the colony down on the planet. That's an, I'm presuming that's a map painting where you see the colony. It's, yeah, it's rather there, nice. There, there was... Um... There was certainly some miniatures made for for the uh, village as well, because I've seen stills of them. So I think it might be a combination of Matt and miniature oh, right. uh, that right. Cameron did. But um, I believe Cameron did some of the map paintings himself as well, which is another sort of you know bow, uh, string to his bow, mm. really, because um, you know he, he was just proving he could sort of turn his hand to anything. Yeah, yeah. The next thing, I mean, we've just said about poor opticals, but you've got a really nice optical next where you've got the hammerhead comes in and it looms over the colony yeah. where everyone's standing around in awe. And that looks good. Even now, that looks really, really good. But we could have had something like that in the modern Star Wars films. Now we see Star Destroyers, you know, in the atmosphere yeah. where you've just got people looking up at the underside like that. Yeah. The um, I always remember when you see the ship kind of coming overhead. I think there's a lady off either to the. Yeah, I think she's on the right hand side, and she just appears to be like one of these actresses, an extra who someone said just stand, uh, but she's not. She's she's not looking in the same direction as everybody else. It's almost like everybody's looking up, and she's just looking off into the distance. Oh, I've got to go and have a look for her. Yeah, yeah, she's just at the side on the. I think she's on like a, a couple of steps down from one of the village things. But yeah, the the. the I think it was in Fantastic Films. It was a really nice shot of the kind of uh, the miniature which was used for the village, and they were almost kind of like um, uh, either tree roots or mushrooms. It's almost like they've been hollowed out, haven't they? From... Again, it looks all very organic again, doesn't it? Yeah. So there's a there's a real there's a real like unique look to that world. You know, it's not just your generic. Because because again, going back to the Book Rogers in the 25th century, quite op often they'd arrive at some kind of town, and it was just the old Western set on Universal Studios that had been redressed. But this actually went to the effort of actually making the planet Akia actually look, you know, unique. Um, you know, it's not it's not just a, a Tatooine ripoff, or it's uh, you know uh, any of those things. It, it it's got its own style, and that's really really nice. And again, that's probably Cameron's influence. Yeah. Yeah, I think I think yeah. I mean, he had only just started out, but you know, he's already cast in a shadow, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. Well, the next bit we've got our uh, Sador, John Saxon. He's a big head um, being um, you know projected, and he's threatening uh, all the people into bowing down to him. Um, and then he asks for snipers to pick off um, random people. Again, not too good. The sound effects aren't too good, and the opticals aren't too good. Yeah, and and they're not. They just kind of run to a, a a control panel and start flicking switches, and then you know they're not really snipers either. They just. It's it's not like they're actually sort of seen like hanging out the side of the ship with rifles or anything. It's just no. kind of they just uh, randomly start shooting. Yeah. 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 Yeah, and he says he's going to return in seven risings yeah. of, of, of the sun. And um, a fighter, he wants a fighter launched um, to keep an eye on them. And that's the little ship that I do like. I, I really do like that little ship. Yeah, the the outside of that ship, um, it's got kind of almost like a ribbed section in it. It looks like it's possibly whatever's on the miniature it's like inside the miniature normally but they've put it on the outside you know kind of like um a superstructure right. in a way so i'm not too sure what they've used for sort of part of the shell but i've always had the impression um whatever it is it's like it should be inside the actual model when you buy it but they've flipped the part on the outside so these little gotcha. bits and pieces are sort of like now visible uh, but, it's like getting a tank hole, but you don't use the outside, you flip it over. Yeah, so. yeah. But right. um, again, it's a really, really nice little design. Um, I wouldn't... Well, it might be about like a foot in size. It looks sort of like a decent size model. Um, yeah. It, I, mean, I mean, that's our sequence over, so we'll continue with what we're saying there. Do you know, do any of these ships still exist, or were they cannibalised? Were they used in other things? Not the same footage, but... Were bits of it used in something else? Do you know? The only one I think that still does exist is Nell, isn't it? Because wasn't there a video recently with um, yeah, Alex? Send me a link to it. Yeah, without Alec, well, Alec Guinness, Alec Guinness. and, and yeah. Um, yeah, he did have it. And what was unusual about Nell, which I'd never have realised before, is 
Um, and I think the, the, the kit which they produced, uh, the garage kit, was wrong because on... You've got the main cockpit window at the on the front, but then on the one side there's like a glass blister. But I think that glass blister is only on one side of the model. It's not. It's not like symmetrical. It's not on both sides. Okay. Um, Hang on. I'm I'm, I'm going to pause because I do have that very model. Hang on a sec. This is exciting podcasting. I'm going <laughs> to run up the stairs and get my model. Hang on a second. All right. Go on. Hang fire. Are you and the listener still there? Yeah. <laughs> right. I have the model with me. Um, no, it, it's accurate. The blister is is only on one side. Oh, right. Okay. Because I'd always assumed it was symmetrical. I'd never ever realised it wasn't. And then when Alec Gillis was showing the uh, the model on the uh, on the video, I, I thought, oh, that's really weird. It, it's it's quite unusual because the rest of the ship is completely symmetrical. But mm. then but then you just have this kind of glass blister. And I was always wondering, well, is it meant to be a window um, you know, what's it meant to be, that blister thing? Yeah, I, I, again, on Facebook, I've put up a photo of my model. I've, I've got it in my hand here. I have Nell in my hand. And, yeah, it, the, the kit, it, it was by a company called Fantastic Plastic That's in right, America. Yeah. And I, I think they still produce it. Yes, it comes with, like, a, um, a glass bead for yeah. that window. On the other side, I'm going to the other side, there's just some greeblies on the other side. Yeah. There was a shot of um, the Nell ship landed on the kind of the uh, the planet in, and that was the, this. This is one of the pictures I always remember from Fantastic Films. You'll remember the article where they were talking to uh, Um mm -hmm. and it looks potentially like what they've actually done is they've photographed the model for the matte painting, and then they've actually enhanced it because it's got a lot more panel lines on the actual um, on the, um, the the matte painting. You know, there's quite a a lot of subtle panels and different shaded panels and details like that. I know the shot you mean, and I always took that to be a, a matte painting, but it's not. It's just like an enhanced photo. Yeah, it? yeah. I think it's it's a combination of matte and miniature. So I think, like you said, they photographed the miniatures and maybe potentially painted something over the surface of it. It's the one where you see the um, the ship we haven't talked about, which is kind of the the glowing UFO uh, yes. landing on the airfield. Um, I think Gelt ship's there, and Cowboy ship's there, and Nell's there, and then you see the uh, the, the UFO ship landing. Uh, which, out of all of the ships, which was weird, because the U the glowing UFO ship was the one that they reused in Forbidden World. They did. Which they did. seemed really they... ridiculous, because you're thinking the inside of the ship didn't seem to match the outside of the ship. No, you no. Know. Do you think that ship is a nod to Close Encounters? That's oh, that yeah, yeah, def there. definitely. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, um, yeah, the planet, um, Akia, you know this, and yeah. all the people in Akia, they're called the Akira, yeah. because that, that, they're named in honour of Akira Kurosawa, yeah, aren't they? Yeah, uh, because this, this is essentially a remake of not only Magnificent Seven, but um, Seven Samurai. Yes, exactly, yes. Um, a, a little fact I've got here, the... Uh, you said it earlier, but I can't really say it. Hephaestus Hefe Space Station? Hefest yeah, Hephaestus Station it is. Yeah, Dr. Hephaestus. That's I th it. I the, think he was uh, one of the gods, wasn't he? Was Hephaestus one of the Greek gods? Like He, he sounds Greek. Uh, I, I don't know about that, but he sounds Greek. But his ship um, was made, the space station was made from uh, a terrarium, a plastic terrarium, okay? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Um, yeah, doc, actually, Hephaestus was the god of fire, metalworking, stonemasonry, and forges. And I think, don't they go to him, supposedly, to get weapons? Right, that's ringing a bell now. Yeah. They have to go to him first before then going on to vanquish a foe, don't they? Yeah, I, I, I think uh, Zed says to them, you know, go to, the doc, go to see the Dr. Hephaestus because he's kind of got weapons mm. and he'll help you out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you said earlier about Alan Howarth, you know, um, and yeah, he created um, unique sound effects for each of the Ships. spacecraft, yeah, didn't he? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, yeah, he did reuse some of the um, sound effects that he had done for um, Star Trek, the motion picture. Um, but he also composed and recorded the music that is heard on the jukebox in Gelt's chamber. That's Alan Howarth. All right, yeah. 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 Um, 
there's one one shot it's the one um where they're actually approaching the kind of entrance to the Hephaestus station which re really reminded me of the shot of the Narcissus getting pulled into the um salvage ship in Aliens yeah yeah uh, very and much I, so yeah. and I, and I believe what it said in one of the magazines I read years ago was um, this was a sequence I think that was going to get scrapped from the movie, which was the docking of uh, Nell into the station. But Cameron himself, I think, figured it was needed, so they actually did it essentially for free. Um, I think him and the Scotak brothers figured the sequence was so important to the story to actually see the ship docking and it in the bay that you know they just worked on the weekend and just um, did it. Um, you know, for no extra cost, just to make the movie, you know, as best as they could, because you know the, you know, even even though these guys probably know they're working on like an ultra low budget kind of Star Wars ripoff, they still want to make the film look as good as possible, and you know, fair juice to them, they did. Yeah, um, you do get a feeling that this that this film was sort of like a rite of passage for so many people, and yeah. um, and of course, you know, James Cameron obviously didn't forget it because he he reused people, didn't he? You yeah. know, the Scopacks um, came on board for Terminator and then Aliens. Yeah. Um, of course, on this film, that's where he met met Gail Ann Hurd, didn't he? Yeah, and uh, I believe it's also where he met Bill Paxton. Yeah. Bill Paxton apparently was a carpenter. Yeah, he was just. I think he was kind of helping build the Nell set, and you know, yes. um, I think Bill had already been in a couple of movies at that point as an actor. Um, you know, he, he'd done some sort of uh, bit parts in movies. I think he'd been in. Um, is it Lords of Discipline? I think at that point with Michael Bane. With Michael Bane, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I think he'd already been in that. Um, so, yeah, it was kind of a case of, you know, he got along like a house on fire with that guy. Well, and apparently he got on with everybody because, you know, he had a, an incredible sense of humour and, um, you know, people remembered him. And, and yeah, James Cameron's first uh, uh, job offer to him was, you know, the punk at the beginning of Terminator, wasn't it? Yeah. But I think Bill Paxton might have worked on Galaxy of Terror as well. I don't know whether I'm getting this story slightly mixed up. It was either Battle Beyond the Stars where he did meet him or it was Galaxy of Terror, which was just like, you know, um, around about the same time. Right. Uh, but, yeah, right. He, he was like, um, yeah, just literally a, a, a carpenter, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so as well as them, you've also got um, Earl Bowen, who played Nesta. Well, oh, yeah. the first yeah. version of Nesta. Um, he, he would go on to appear in Terminator. That's right, as uh, Dr. Silverman. Silverman or yeah. whatever, yeah. I love him. I love Dr. Silburn. Um And, uh, of course, yeah, James Horner went on to uh, score Aliens. Alec Gillis moved across and, and came across for that as well. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and then, of course, in The Abyss, um, much later on, um, Dennis and Robert Skotek uh, were back for that as well, weren't they? Yeah. Uh, but I'm not too sure why uh, the Skotek brothers never worked on Terminator with him because he used... Um, who did he use Fantasy Two effects? Didn't he? Was which was Gene Warren Jr. Um, yeah. I'm not too sure why the score tax never worked on that. I mean, you know, the, maybe the were they, they didn't work for that production company, therefore they didn't work on that film. You know? Yeah, but yeah. Uh, so he def definitely brought them back, obviously for uh, for Aliens and uh, Terminator Two, and um, I, th I think they worked on True Lies. So they worked on quite a lot with Cameron after that. Yeah, I, I, I've seen an interview with uh, Bob Skotak, and he, when he talks about Battle Beyond the Stars, it's with nothing but affection, you know. Yeah. He said they were all young, they were eager, they wanted to make films, you know, they were very incredibly artistic and creative, you know, and this was a way of, you know, unleashing it. Oh, and boy, what a kickstart to their careers it was. Yeah. Wasn't it Alec Gillis who, I mean, he was from the same town as Cameron, wasn't he? He was from, he was like a, a college buddy of his, and I think it was kind of Alec Gillis at this point had already got his foot kind of in the door, um, but he was kind of almost like carpooling with him. Yeah. Um, and then I think he'd sort of said to somebody, um, you know, uh, check out this guy's kind of short film. Um, and so it was kind of probably Alec Gillis who sort of kick-started James Cameron's career by saying to people, you know, you need to check this guy out. Yeah, uh, and he replayed it, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. He 
repaid it. Yeah. Um, the last little fact I've got, which I didn't know, is uh, Battle Beyond the Stars is another name for the green slime. All right, okay. Yeah, that, that, that's known in some places as Battle Beyond the Stars. You can't compare the two, really, can no, you? No. The green slime and Battle Beyond the Stars. I believe there was talk of a sequel at the time. I'm sure there was kind of going to be like Battle Beyond the Galaxy or something. Um, it was mentioned in Starlog or Starburst, just as a, you know, in in their things to come. Uh, so I think it sort of did do okay at the box office, didn't it? You know, I think it's sort of made some, you know, it wasn't a, obviously a Star Wars type smash, but, you know, for whatever the investment was, I think they certainly made the money back. All right. Well, Andrew, I know you have certain views on the modern trend of um, reboots. Yeah. But, but if I was to say to you, yeah, Andrew, did you hear James Cameron is going to reboot Battle Beyond the Stars? Would you say, yeah, I'm, I'm interested? Uh, probably not. No? No. no. Because it, I think a lot of these sort of films, especially because, you know, this was The Magnificent Seven, they've, they've had the time, you know. I, I, I'm i much more of that mindset now. If these things have had the time, they've had their little place in the in the sun and, you know, it's time just to lay them to rest. You know, remember them for what they are. Um, and reboots and remakes and things like that are just quite often... You know, I mean, even recently we've had remakes, and uh, I know there's another version of Little Women out, and that's been made about five or six times as a movie. It's been on TV probably half a dozen times, including one about three years ago. Um, and, you know, it's out again. And then they're wondering why it's not doing good at the box office. Um, and they're doing all this kind of blame game as, oh, you know, men aren't going to see it, but it's not. It's like we've it's been done to death. <laughs> It. Yes, give yeah. us something new. Yeah, yeah. And, I, and I think that's the problem. It's like, there was even obviously the episode of The Mandalorian recently, which kind of did the like, not necessarily The Magnificent Seven, it was more like The Magnificent Three. Um, and, you know, that was kind of. And a lot of um, TV shows, again, whether it be Book Rogers and Battlestar Galactica, did that story. You know, you've got a group of villagers who need help, so somebody yeah. steps in um, and shows them how. I mean, Army of Darkness did it, you know. Um, yeah. Ash shows the, the, the people in the castle, you know, how, how to use spears and how to fight. Yeah. Um, you know, so it, it, it does, it's kind of, yeah, being done to death and we need to move on to new things. There's so many science fiction books out there that have won Nebula Awards and Hugo Awards by people like Larry Niven and um, you know, Ben Bover and Arthur C. Clarke and Asimov that have never, ever been made. I want to see Rendezvous with Rama. Yeah, Harry Harrison books and st like Death Stain is still Rat the movie. Yeah, How De brilliant would that be? Like Death World and things like that, just never yeah. been done, and yet they'll just churn out the same junk again and again. Mm. Somebody needs to grow some balls, really. Uh, and, yes. Yeah, you know, and, and actually sort of like say, let's take a gamble. Now, I'm not saying take a $200 million gamble. You know, but, you know, when you see some of these filmmakers who can do sort of really great stuff for, you know, a couple of mil, you think, yeah, give them 15, 20 mil and get get some get some new James Camerons out there. That's what you need is you need these people who can step. Yeah, do a District 9, you yeah. know. Yeah. For for me, I always felt a bit sort of sorry for Duncan Jones because, you know, he did Moon and I love Moon. I thought it was outstanding. And then obviously he comes along and he does Source Code where they've given him a bit more money to play with. And it was still a great movie. But then suddenly they just give him this Warcraft movie. Yeah. You know, and I just think, no, you don't want that. That's just, he's he's just been given this franchise and a budget of 175 mil and he's got to make that money back yeah. and they never did you know it was a it was seen as a flop and you think Cameron again he sort of he worked his way through the ranks um you know fr from being production designer and model maker and map painter and then he starts you know he gets his foot in the door with directing Piranha 2 and then he goes on the Terminator and Aliens and then you know okay after Aliens he jumps a bit to the Abyss which was a big budget but he'd kind of Shawnee could do it mm. uh, and take control of these things. Uh, but I feel sorry for filmmakers when they're just given these huge budget films and then it's yeah. when it fails, it's their fault. Okay. And, and quite often the reboots, you know, unfortunately. 
Oh, you're all right. Okay, that's <laughs> that's my answer. Uh, my, my my question answered. Yeah. All right. So uh, let's move on. Uh, rating on the opening sequence. What what would you say? If I was to take it, sort of including the music and everything. I mean, you know, I'd probably give it like a, a seven. You know, I, I think it's you know it's it's a good opening. I do like it. Um, you know, it's it's a memorable. I, I remember it. You know, I can. I can hear it's one of those sort of sequences I can you know I know you only watched it recently to refresh for this but it is a case of you know I can picture this thing in my head I can see how it plays out where yeah. with a lot of modern movies I've just completely forgotten them you know days later but uh, you know I, I, I do like the I, I love that bit in the opening credits with us like before it goes to hyperspace you get those kind of circles don't you Yeah. as the music comes in and then uh, then, then the, the hyperspace and uh, I said the the score is great, um, and yeah, it's like you said. Besides those dodgy optical effects, I do like the miniature work. Yep. Um, there, there was a um, an an optical effects system that they used at the time, wasn't it? Called Elicon, which was like mm -hmm. a a cheap motion control system. And apparently, I read about how this worked. They didn't shoot anything blue screen. Um, it was all shot. Um, they shot the miniature against the black background, supposedly. Um, and then what they did then is they reversed it by turning the black background into a white background, so the miniature became a silhouette. Gotcha. And then what happened then is that silhouette element of the miniature was then overlaid, like you know, by by packed with the the, the other part to leave the, the the blank space for the for the star background or whatever to fit in. So it was a very cheap way of matting by um, t turning the uh, the miniature just into a silhouette. And and right. laying that that piece of developed film kind of like in the optical printer with the undeveloped film, um, you know, where, where with the blue screen technique, I think you know they have to kind of process that to to extract the mass. This was a very cheap way of doing matting, uh, and it worked because a lot of the stuff was obviously just against black backgrounds. Yeah, and it you know, does work, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. you know, they, they weren't sort of keying against sort of like uh, snowscapes or or. A bright skies it was all quite uh that dark surrounding yeah, yeah. um again going back to sorry just to the um james cameron influence it's the sequence where the uh shad ship lands on the planet where gelt is and it's kind of a storm and there's mm -hmm. um there's clouds and you see the ship coming into land it's very aliens that mm -hmm. um yeah. you know the landscape with the the, the kind of the, the the drifting cloud layer and the um the, the flashes of lightning um, I always remember thinking when I seen aliens again, you know, it's like this is influenced. So, but mm. what would you give it then? What would you? I give... gave it an eight. Actually. An eight, right? Okay. Yeah. So that makes it seven and a half. Right. All right. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Is that fair? I think for that sequence, yeah. Um, I mean, as an overall, you know, movie, if we would grade it. It probably would be higher uh, because there is a lot of nice miniature work and stuff in there. Right. But, but just specifically for that sequence, I'd probably give it a seven. Okay. Yeah. All right. Okay. Right. Well, you've just given me um, an an idea for a future topic for us, which is Moon. Shall we do Moon yeah. soon? Yeah. Yeah. But before that, next time you're back on this show, uh, Andrew, um, I don't know if you've remembered this, but I've got you down for the next time you're going to appear on this. It won't be the next um, episode of this, but the next time you're coming back to the show is for At the Earth's Core. Oh, core. <laughs> At the you Earth's put Core. You the core there, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, core. Core with exclamation marks after it. I wonder why. Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, next time, Andrew, you're back on the show, it's, uh, yeah, to visit that one. All right? Yeah, it's one of my favourites, that one. Yeah, all right. Well, you can do your research now, all right? Yeah, I've, I've definitely got that one uh, to hand on DVDs up on the top shelf there. So. <laughs> yes, a lot of that is top shelf, yes. All right. Okay, well, thank you very much for today, Andrew. That's okay. It's been great. All right, and, yeah, I'll see you back soon. Yeah. All right? Bye. Cheers, Andrew. Bye-bye.